Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you bless us. Father, we are amazed when we truly open our eyes and truly open our minds and truly open our hearts to the ways that you are working in us and through us and in those who are around us. And Father, we thank you for allowing us to be a part of of your story, Father, a part of your kingdom. Father, we pray that you will be with our youth group that is on their way back from California. Father, watch over them, keep them safe, bring them back to us, bring them back renewed and revitalized so that they will be an influence on us that will help us to be renewed and revitalized as well. Father, as we look at another encounter that some people had with your son, Jesus Christ, pray, Father, that we will learn from that encounter, Father, that we will become more like your son, Jesus Christ. And, Father, as a result of that, we pray that more people will come to know him because they will see him in us. And, Father, we pray this through his name, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. So believe it or not, it's the first Sunday in August. Somehow we've made it all the way to August. And we've reached the next to last week of our sermon series, Face to Face with Jesus, where we've been looking at various encounters that people had with Jesus, people who came face to face with Jesus. And we're exploring what those encounters meant to those people. But more importantly, we're looking at what those encounters mean for us, for us as disciples of Jesus Christ, as we strive to follow Jesus, our Lord and Master, at all times, in all places, and in every circumstance. So everyone will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. We started out this series with Peter and the other apostles. And we learned from their encounter with Jesus that who we say Jesus is very much defines who we are and very much determines what kind of life that we're going to lead. And then we stood with John the Baptist in the Jordan River as he baptized Jesus. And we saw the Spirit descend and we heard God's voice speak. And we learned that John's message of repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins is actually God's message And it also should be our message to the world around us. We then climbed on a roof with some men who had brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus for healing. And we learned from that encounter that we're all paralyzed before God without the forgiving and healing power of Jesus Christ. And we also learned that we should be filling the role of those men on the roof and bring other people into the healing and forgiving presence of Jesus Christ. We then went with Jesus on a hurried trip from the shore of a lake to the bedside of a dying 12-year-old girl. And we saw that journey interrupted by a woman who had been suffering for 12 years as she reached out to Jesus for healing. And we learned through the healing of that unclean woman and through the restoration of life of the unclean girl that Jesus' ministry is all about washing and it's all about cleansing and it's all about restoration And then we crashed a dinner party. And there we saw a notoriously sinful woman teach us that emotional, extravagant, and uncontrolled behavior that is completely inappropriate for a dinner party is exactly appropriate when we enter the healing presence of Jesus Christ. And then late one night, we listened as Nicodemus had a conversation with Jesus, a kind of confusing conversation about rebirth and about the spirit and about water. And we learned from that encounter that Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus lives again to bring people like Nicodemus 
and people like you and me out of the darkness of sin and into his light. And then we walked with Jesus into Samaria. And as Jesus talked with a woman at Jacob's well, we learned that ethnic and gender and religious and moral gaps between us and others should never prevent the offer of Jesus' life-giving, life-giving water. And then we spent the last two weeks in and around Jericho. And there we saw Jesus as he was preparing for his final journey to Jerusalem. And we learned from a blind beggar that people who are suffering don't interrupt what is important. Instead, they remind us of what is important. And then last week, as Jesus looked up in a tree at a wee little man, we learned that no one is out of the reach of Jesus Christ. No one is beyond the reach of Jesus the searching shepherd. And then this week, we're still going to be in the vicinity of Jericho. And we're going to see two brothers make a bold request for the premium seats available once Jesus reaches Jerusalem. On the screen behind me, you see a picture of the pit, full of a lot of people during a basketball game. And in case you're wondering, I am in that picture. So if you want to play the game of Where's Walter, you can do it. Um, To give you a hint, I'm wearing red, so that might help you out. Um, It's kind of like the the adult equivalent of the children's bulletins, give you something to do this morning, I guess. Um, But that's really not why I have the picture displayed. I, I chose this picture to help illustrate something that I think we all intuitively understand. If we attend a sporting event or if we attend a concert or we attend a play, we understand that some seats are just better than others. And by the way, mine aren't down close to the floor. We understand that they're better because they're closer to the action maybe, or maybe they're more comfortable, or maybe they come with some additional perks that other seats don't come with. Those are the premium seats. Or maybe you've had this experience as you're boarding an airplane for a flight, and you pass those large first-class seats that can be made into beds. And then as you move towards your seat, you pass the business class seats that have plenty of leg room. And then finally, you make your way to your seats, which have no leg room. And they're between two large strangers who are both suffering with colds. Those are your seats. And as you sit down between those two strangers, you can't help thinking about the premium seats, the good seats that are at the front of the plane. We all understand that the premium seats also come at a premium, don't they? We understand that they cost more. They're more costly than the other seats. And we also understand that the premium seats aren't desired just because you can see better from those seats, but they're also oftentimes desired because you can be seen better from those seats. Those seats seem to say something about the person who's sitting in them. Maybe it says they're important, or maybe it says they're powerful, or maybe it says that they're rich. A lot of times we think that it's only premium people who are able to sit in the premium seats. And those are the kind of seats that we're going to see two brothers request from Jesus. They're looking for the courtside seats. They're looking for the first-class seats. They're looking for the premium seats that are reserved for premium people. 
Before we get to their request, let's spend a, a couple of minutes providing a little background and a little context to today's encounter. One of the things we need to understand as we approach this encounter is that it closely follows the argument that was read for us a minute ago about who's the greatest in the kingdom. The apostles had that argument. In Mark chapter 9, verse 33, we read again, When Jesus was in the house, he asked his disciples, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. So this quest for standing, this quest for status among the twelve isn't something new. It's not something that is just now occurring. It's apparently been simmering for some time among the twelve. And it's a source of conflict among the twelve. But until now, no one has been bold enough to actually broach the subject with Jesus about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. We should also understand that this encounter that we look at today echoes the encounter that Peter and the apostles had that we talked about in the very first week of this series. It echoes that conversation about identity that Jesus had with Peter and the other apostles. We'll see that the twelve are still struggling to understand who Jesus really is. And they're still struggling to understand and to identify what it means to be a disciple of this man, Jesus Christ. So with that as background, let's turn to today's text. We're in Mark chapter 10. I'll start reading in verse 32. Mark 10, 32. It says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So we see for Jesus' followers, these are confusing and troubling times. His words and his actions are continually evoking surprise and fear because he isn't acting and he isn't talking like they expect him to. Not only has Jesus just pronounced that the rich and the powerful people are the ones who are going to have the hardest time finding seats in his kingdom, he's once more making references to what awaits in Jerusalem. And what awaits in Jerusalem doesn't sound very pleasant. It doesn't sound anything like the triumphant and the victorious scene that the apostles and the disciples have envisioned. In fact, the vision that Jesus relates here for the third time of what awaits them in Jerusalem was inconceivable. It was unbelievable for his disciples. And one of the reasons for that is because they had misidentified the enemy. They didn't really understand who the enemy was. See, they were under the mistaken notion that Rome, the foreign occupier, they were under the mistaken assumption that Rome was the enemy. Or maybe that the religious leaders who opposed Jesus were the enemy. So their vision of what awaited them in Jerusalem was the defeat of the Roman government and the ousting of the entrenched religious rulers. That was their vision 
They envisioned the restoration of Israel to the glory and the power of King David. They envisioned Jesus, if he really is the one who they believe he is, they envisioned Jesus seated on King David's throne. And along with that, it would be Jesus' closest friends and Jesus' closest followers who would have the prominent positions, the premium seats of power and authority in God's coming kingdom. And then all this talk about betrayal, this talk about torture and death, and even Jesus' talk about rising after three days simply doesn't fit in at all with their vision of what was to come. They didn't understand that Jesus was indeed on his way to Jerusalem. And he was on his way to Jerusalem to conquer the enemy. But Jesus understood that the enemy wasn't the Roman government. The enemy wasn't the Roman army. The enemy wasn't the Roman agents. He understood that the enemy wasn't the chief priests. The enemy wasn't the teachers of the law. The enemy wasn't the Pharisees. It wasn't the Sanhedrin. Jesus understood that the enemy The true enemy was Satan. The true enemy was sin. The true enemy was death. And that difference in visions was made very obvious when Jesus' description of what awaits in Jerusalem is followed by this, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. That's kind of jarring, isn't it? That's unexpected. And it's jarring not just because it's a bold power play on these two brothers' part. And it is a bold power play on their part. But it's jarring because it demonstrates the profound misunderstanding of Jesus and his coming kingdom that the two brothers and the rest of the apostles shared. I mean, why on earth would you ask someone for the premium seats in their glory if you really believed that he's about to be betrayed? If you really believe that he's about to be condemned, he's about to be mocked, he's about to be flogged, that he's about to be killed? No sane person is going to listen to that menu of options and say, man, I've got to get me some of that. No one's going to turn to their brother and say, boy, we better hurry before someone else gets those prime betrayal seats. We better hurry before someone gets those prime condemnation seats. Someone gets those prime mocking and flogging and killing seats. They truly didn't understand. See, this gap between Jesus and his disciples, not just James and John, but Jesus and all of his disciples, this gap is glaring. He's talking about suffering and his approaching, humiliating death. And while he's talking about, they're arguing about their personal greatness. And they're angling and taking steps to secure the premium seats in his coming kingdom. This request shows the enormous disconnect between his disciples and their vision of the coming kingdom and what truly is going to be the coming kingdom for God. So let's see how Jesus responds to the request. Verse 38, he says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with a baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink 
and be baptized with a baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So we see Jesus respond not in anger, not even in frustration like we might have expected, but he responds by simply acknowledging the gap in their understanding. And he also asks them a commitment question. The question he asks them is essentially, can you follow in my steps? Can you go through what I'm about to go through? And the brothers, without hesitation, with complete confidence, the brothers James and John say, yes. Yes, we can. We can do whatever it takes. We can deal with whatever is coming. Also notice that Jesus doesn't question the brothers' commitment. He accepts their commitment. And he affirms that they not only think that they can, but that they will drink the cup that he drinks. They will face the baptism that he will face. They'll follow in his steps. So the question that Jesus has isn't about the level of their commitment. His question is about the depth of their understanding of the coming kingdom. Because you see, they truly don't know what they're asking. Personally, I find the confidence expressed by James and John admirable. Even in the midst of their understanding, I find their confidence admirable. Their commitment to follow Jesus, I believe, is to be admired. It's to be emulated. But I also find their confidence more than a little bittersweet. It's a little bittersweet because we know what's to come. And we know that James and John will follow Jesus. But we know that they'll follow them in very different ways. We know that James will drink the cup that Jesus will drink. We know that James will follow Jesus to an early death at the hands of the Roman government. In Acts chapter 12, we read this. King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And we also know that in contrast to his brother, John will live a very long and very productive life, serving God and serving God's church. We know that John will write the gospel of John. We know he will write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We know that he'll receive revelations and write the book that we call Revelation. We know that about John. We know he'll be known as the elder, a patriarch in the church. So we know that both of them will follow Jesus, but in very different ways. But that's in the future. What we still don't know about is what is going to happen in this encounter. Specifically, how will the other ten respond to this request that James and John have made? Verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Not surprisingly, the other ten respond in anger. And the anger isn't because they recognized how inappropriate this request was. They respond in anger because James and John had beat them to the punch. Beat them to the punch in requesting those premium seats that they all envisioned being available in Jerusalem. I mean, how dare they come right out and ask for something that all of them coveted? How dare they be so open with their ambition? How dare they ask for something that they hadn't even earned? I imagine that you could have cut the tension among the twelve 
with a knife. So then Jesus calls them all together and Jesus says this in verse 42. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So we see Jesus deal with the tension by turning the notion of leadership and the notion of power and the notion of authority completely upside down. James and John and the other apostles had been looking at the world through Roman eyes. They'd been envisioning a kingdom based on Roman rules. A kingdom where leadership is desired so that you can lord it over other people. A kingdom where premium positions are pursued so you can have authority over other people. But then Jesus declares that in the coming kingdom, in God's kingdom... In the kingdom that he envisions, the pyramid of leadership will be completely inverted. The pyramid of leadership will be turned upside down. See, in the coming kingdom, leadership will no longer be defined by the extent of one's control. It will no longer be defined by the extent of one's power. It will be a kingdom where God's people will choose to pursue service instead of power. God's kingdom will be a kingdom of priests instead of a kingdom of kings. See, God's kingdom only has room for one king. But it has room for an unlimited number of priests who are in service to the king and are in service to each other. Priests aren't about exercising power. They're about exercising service. Priests aren't about exerting authority. They're about recognizing and accepting the authority of God, their king. And if their king, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, if their king came to serve and give his life as a ransom, shouldn't his disciples emulate? Shouldn't they follow that example? And I think ultimately, that's what we learn from this encounter between Jesus and the two brothers seeking premium seats in Jesus' kingdom. We learn that our identity as disciples of the king, our identity as priests in the kingdom, has consequences. It bears consequences. We learn that we as disciples and priests won't be rooted in our accomplishments, and we won't be rooted in our abilities, but instead will be rooted in what God has done for us and what God will do through us. You see, my seat in the kingdom isn't about me. My seat in the kingdom is about God. My seat in the kingdom isn't about what I want to be. It's about what God calls me to be. It isn't about what I've done or what I want to do. It's about what God is doing and will do through me. And it isn't about what I've made of myself. It's about what God is making out of me. And I believe that stands as a radical indictment of the world that we live in. We live in a world that seems to be all about looking out for me. All about getting ahead, even if it means that comes at the expense of you. 
But when we choose kingdom seats, we choose a different path. In this world that's obsessed with power and obsessed with rule, we choose to base our existence on service. We base our existence on service of the king and service of each other. Instead of looking out for me, I will look out for you. Instead of getting ahead at your expense, I place my needs behind your needs. And the reason that we do that, the reason we're able to do that is because we serve the king who conquered the true enemy. We serve the king who not only went to Jerusalem to be betrayed, to be condemned, to be tortured, to be killed, but we serve the king who also went to Jerusalem to rise again in three days. We belong to the risen king. We belong to the king who conquered Satan. We belong to the king who conquered sin. We belong to the king who conquered death. And that's why we freely accept our seats as priests, not as kings, as priests in his kingdom. And the irony of these kingdom seats is that they are freely given. But they're freely given to those who are willing to pay the price of giving themselves to Jesus. They are freely given to those who are willing to leave their old self behind. Who are willing to accept their new identity as a priest in God's kingdom. All these seats cost me is me. All these seats cost you is you. Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. For when we give ourselves to Jesus, we take on his sacrificial image. And we take on that image because he lives in us. So my conclusion is this. Kingdom seats, premium seats... Those are servant seats. Those are seats reserved not for those who control, but for those who submit. These premium seats are servant seats. They're reserved not for those who want to be seen, but for those in whom Christ is seen. That's why my prayer, my personal prayer, is that the Lord will make me a servant. The Lord will make me a true servant of his, a true servant of others. And that's my invitation for all of us today, to make that our prayer, to make us a servant, a servant of God and a servant of each other. You may ask, what does that look like? And I can't answer that for you. I can't define that for you. But I do want to caution you before you Say that prayer, Lord, make me a servant, Lord, make me like you. Is that when you pray that prayer, you are giving up control. You're giving up the ability to define for yourself what that means in your life, and you're giving that control to God. You're giving that control to Jesus. You can't define it for yourself. I can't define it for you, what that looks like in your life. James found that in his life it meant literally dying as a Christian martyr at a young age. While his brother John found that in his life it meant being a patriarch in the church, an elder in the church, a prolific author 
in the church, an example for others to follow. For Dr. Brantley, it meant putting himself in harm's way as he went to serve people in Africa who had the Ebola virus. For most of us, it probably won't be that dramatic. I know for some in this congregation, it's meant teaching preschool for over 40 years. For others in this congregation, I know it's meant taking aging parents into their home and ministering to their needs. For others, I know it's been taking foster children into their home, children who desperately need a loving Christian family. For others, I know it's meant stepping off the ladder of success so they can be the husband and father that God calls them to be. And there are hundreds of other stories of what this looks like. But what I want to invite each of you to do is, as we stand and as we sing the song, as we, through song, pray to God to make us a servant, give up control and give that control to Jesus and allow him to make you the servant that he needs you to be in his kingdom. Let's stand and sing together.